Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of The Trail, from New Hampshire to the White House. Anyone who wants to be president has to come through New Hampshire first, and no one covers New Hampshire politics like WMUR. I'm WMUR political director Adam Sexton, and we hope you can join us every week for this podcast. Our guest this evening is former Housing and Urban Development Secretary Julian Castro. Tonight we'll be getting to know Secretary Castro and where he stands on key issues. At the start of the show, I'll be asking the candidates some questions. And then after a break, we'll have our studio audience ask their questions in a town hall format. But before we begin with that, let's take a quick look at the candidate's biography. Julian Castro was born in San Antonio, Texas in 1974 and raised on the west side of the city. He graduated from Stanford and got his law degree from Harvard before working for a law firm in Texas. In 2001, he became the youngest member of the San Antonio City Council. He founded his own law practice and became mayor of San Antonio in 2009, getting reelected twice. Castro delivered the first keynote address by a Latino at the 2012 Democratic National Convention. In 2014, President Barack Obama nominated Castro to be Secretary of Housing and Urban Development, and the U.S. Senate later confirmed him as the 16th Secretary of HUD, a position he held until 2017. Castro then joined the faculty of the LBJ School of Public Affairs at the University of Texas. He has also written a book about his life called Waking Up from My American Dream. Castro is married, has two children, and has an identical twin brother, Joaquin, who is a congressman from Texas. Secretary, thank you for joining this, e this evening Great to on be Conversation with, with the Candidate. Yeah, thanks your for having me. So as we noted, you served in the Obama administration, and it's safe to say that uh, if you're elected president, you'll return to some of the policies uh, that he had during his tenure there. Uh, so how do you convince people who voted for Donald Trump in 2016, but might be reluctant to do so again, that they're better off by reversing course? Uh, I would say, uh, number one, that people want a president uh, in the next term who is trying to bring the country together instead of trying to tear them apart. Somebody who has demonstrated integrity and honesty in public service instead of the ethical cloud that hangs over this administration. They want a president who's going to be a president for all Americans, not just a president for 37 percent that this president considers his base. And I fundamentally believe when we're talking about jobs, when we're talking about health care, when we're talking about education, uh, growing our economy, that people want a president who is focused on making the country better in the future, not on making the country anything again and taking us backward. I'm that candidate that will take us into the future. You've had time now to digest the Mueller report and the politics around it. Do you believe Congress should impeach the president? I believe they should. Uh, the Mueller report pointed out 10 instances, 10 individual instances in which the president tried to obstruct justice. And it's very clear from that report that Bob Mueller essentially put that into the hands of Congress. Now, Democratic leadership uh, in Congress is saying that what they're going to do is subpoena Bob Mueller, hear his testimony, and also do more inquiry, which is fine. I believe at the end of that inquiry, basically what they're going to get to is the same point that there were 10 different instances where this president tried to obstruct justice. So the question becomes, are you going to hold this president accountable? Are you going to hold him accountable to the rule of law? And I believe that, uh, that he should be. Now, some people have said, well, that may not make sense politically. Uh, what I say is that we can walk and chew gum at the same time. I'm going out there, and there are 19 other candidates that are going out there every single day talking to the American people, people about how we can create more jobs in the country, how we can ensure they have better health care, that their kids have a better education. We can 
articulate a strong, positive vision for the future of our country and also make sure that, uh, that we hold Donald Trump accountable. The economy is doing very well right now, and New Hampshire has one of the lowest unemployment rates in the nation. You would obviously bring some different economic... Well, I, let, let me just stop you there, Adam. Uh, a couple of days ago, I was in Las Vegas, and uh, I went to Las Vegas, and I visited these, this storm drainage tunnel that runs underneath the Las Vegas Strip. There are thousands of people who are living who are homeless underneath this tunnel, right? The irony of hundreds of millions of dollars worth of casinos sitting on that strip and then underneath that uh, thousands of people who are homeless and to get to your your point there are a lot of people who are not doing well right now in this country we have a lot of income inequality we have a lot of poverty out there that under this administration is simply not being addressed because Donald Trump is telling us that everything is good for everybody which is not true how would your economic policies though make the economy better uh, number one, uh, I would invest in empowering everyday Americans to succeed uh, in uh, better education for their children, in universal health care so they don't have to worry about you know, not being able to, to afford health care if they don't have a job or if they lose their job. Uh, also, investing in things like better apprenticeship programs, job training programs throughout the country, including in rural America, so that people have a better opportunity to get a job. Those types of things that don't leave anybody behind. And in addition to that, I would turn around the last 40 years of the tax code that has asked less and less of people at the very top and of big corporations and has asked more and more of the middle class and the working poor so that there's more balance in this country. The bus is getting pretty full on the Democratic field right now. A lot of people running for president. You're on the younger end uh, of the spectrum here. Do you think generationally it's time for America to look to new leadership that doesn't involve perhaps septuagenarian white men? Well, you know, I, I have to confess that uh, I'm 44 right now and I would be 46 on Election Day. I never thought that I would be the fourth youngest person running in this race. Uh, but even if I weren't running, what I do hear out there right now is that people want a new generation of leadership. They want new blood in Washington. They want new ideas. And so uh, I do think that uh, what you're going to see is, as this campaign goes forward, that more people gravitating toward a new generation of leadership. Secretary Castro, this was the easy stuff. Now it's time to head over for the town hall. Thank you. We appreciate your time here. Coming up after the break, we'll bring our studio audience into this conversation. Stay with us. Hey, Facebook recently made some changes. Now you're missing out on lots of content from WMUR. But it's easy to stay connected. Go to WMUR's Facebook page, tap follow, then see first. That's it. Just two taps brings you back in the know. Welcome back to Conversation with the Candidate and tonight's guest, former HUD Secretary Julian Castro. We're going to have questions now from our New Hampshire voters in a town hall format. I'll jump in with a social media question now and then and a follow-up. But for now, let's get right to the questions and we'll start with Gary Evans of Where. Hi. Welcome to New Hampshire. Well, as you know, we've uh, we just had another mass shooting with an AR-15 assault rifle. I think everybody but the NRA thinks that we need some better gun control. I'd like to know what exactly your policies would be if you became president. Thank you very much, uh, Gary, for the question. Um, you know, a couple of weeks ago, uh, we marked 20 years since Columbine. And if folks will remember, when Columbine happened in 1999, it was uh, an absolute shock to our country. And one of the saddest things about living in these times is that it seems oftentimes that we've gotten so used to hearing 
the news about another mass shooting. And it's time for us in this country to take serious action to help ensure that that does not happen the way that it is today. I support common sense gun reform. I support universal background checks, uh, limiting the capacity of magazines, and also uh, an updated assault weapons ban. Uh, I believe that all of those things make sense, that they will help prevent the kind of carnage that we've seen across the country too many times. Uh, and one of the most, I think, shameful moments of the United States Congress in the last few years was after Newtown happened and that uh, those congressional representatives, even though 90% of Americans supported something as simple as universal background checks, and I want to point out, mostly Republican congressional representatives, there were some, a few Democrats, but mostly Republican congressional representatives did not even support universal background checks. We need to change that. And I will tell you that I have been absolutely inspired by the kids at Parkland, uh, these young people who have spoken for their generation, become activists. And we haven't seen a lot of legisla legislative changes yet, but this is what has changed that's important. Um, what has changed is that there are more elected officials, more politicians who are willing to stand up to the NRA and to push back. And I'm confident that in the years to come that we can pass common sense gun reform. The last thing I'll say about this is that I believe that we need to connect the dots and that um, go beyond this issue of only what happens in one of these mass shootings. For instance, um, many people who die at the hands of a gun uh, actually die by suicide. They take their own life with a gun. And this connects directly to our conversation about health care, making sure that we no longer separate mental health care from physical health care. Because too often times, people live with this stigma, if they have bipolar disorder, if they have depression, that leads them down further and further into this abyss, and they commit something like suicide. Uh, I want to make sure that we connect those dots and invest in things like mental health care that I believe will also reduce death by guns. Okay. Thank you, Yuri. Next question comes from Ann Ackerman. Hi, thank you for um, being with us today. How would you address runaway prescription drug prices? Thank you very much. Uh, and for the question, uh, I, I believe that we need a new health care system. Uh, I grew up with a grandmother who had diabetes. And my brother Joaquin and I watched uh, as we got older and she got older. Uh, we watched her condition get worse and worse until right before she passed away in early 1996, she had to have one of her feet amputated, which is very common for people with severe diabetes. She had type 2 diabetes. That whole time, though, she had Medicare. I want to strengthen Medicare for the people who are on it, who have it, and then make sure that everybody can have access to Medicare if they want it. As part of that, I believe that we should do things like ensure that the government can negotiate drug prices right? and that we're able to um, lower prescription drug costs because of that. Uh, there are too many people up here in New Hampshire, for instance, or in my neck of the woods of Texas, up here in New Hampshire who have to go to Canada to get cheap, cheaper drugs, or in Texas they go to Mexico. That should never be the case in the United States. And I will support all efforts, all legislation, uh, to ensure that we can bring down that cost. 
But ultimately, we need to change our healthcare system to one where healthcare and medication is available to everybody. Thank you. Thank you, Ann. We have a social media question coming in from Stephen Kidder of Concord. He asks, with 11 million undocumented people in this country, will you commit to actively securing a path to citizenship for aspiring citizens? Thanks for the question, uh, <laughs> Stephen. Um, actually, yes, I will. Um, let me just tell folks how I think about this, right? because this is, this is important, uh, both as a matter of the future of our country, but because this president has clearly made this his front and center issue. Right? Uh, on April 2nd, I released what I call a people first immigration plan. And I have a completely different vision for immigration policy from this president. Uh, he and I agree that we need a secure border. Every country in the world, of course, is always gonna be concerned about making sure that its border is secure. I believe that we actually have a border that is more secure than it's ever been. We have 654 miles of fencing. We have thousands of personnel on the border. We have guns, we have boats, we have helicopters, we have airplanes, we have security cameras. Let's not confuse the fact that so many people are coming to our border with the idea that we don't have a secure border. And in fact, we can make sure that we further secure the border by investing, for instance, at our ports of entry so that we better catch uh, human trafficking and drug trafficking. However, this president wants us to think that we have to choose between having a secure border and being compassionate. I believe that we can have a secure border and also be compassionate. And I'm asking people to choose compassion instead of cruelty. I would stop separating little children from their mothers. I would end family detention. And I would create a path to citizenship for the 10 to 11 undocumented, million undocumented immigrants who are here, as long as they haven't committed a serious crime. That would include dreamers, but it would also include their parents and other undocumented immigrants. And, uh, I also believe that we have to get smart about what to do on this in the long run. I've called for a 21st century Marshall Plan for Central America. A lot of these folks are coming from uh, Honduras or El Salvador, Guatemala. And why would a mother take her six-month-old infant thousands of miles on a dangerous journey, except that it's so dangerous there where she's at that she has to get away, get out of it? get to the hope of a better life in the United States. We can partner with these countries in an unprecedented way to make sure that people can find safety and opportunity there instead of having to come and knock on the door of the United States. That's what I believe in. And so it's a smarter, bolder, and more compassionate but effective immigration policy that I've proposed. Okay, next question comes from Joan Wentworth of Lineborough. Good evening, Secretary Castro. Good evening. Could you give us your thoughts on the types of circumstances where the president should or should not issue an executive order. And as president, would you support setting limits on their use? Uh, thank you very much uh, for the question. Um, yeah, so uh, of course, I do believe that there's uh, under our constitution a check on executive authority. Uh, I certainly don't agree with presidents who have done things that uh, have plainly been illegal. A good example of that was uh, in the 1970s, uh, the actions of Richard Nixon. Uh, I also believe that uh, uh, the push by this president to take money 
from other parts of the budget summarily out of the hands of Congress to build the wall that he wants to build was also stepping over the bounds. At the same time, um, I would be comfortable uh, doing executive orders that are in the tradition of what other presidents have done. Let me give you an example of that. A few, year, few years ago, when uh, President Obama dealt with this decision about whether to do DACA or not, and then after that, DAPA, um, prioritizing uh, how we would enforce immigration was within the realm of what other presidents had done in the past, George H.W. Bush and other presidents. And so I would look to the guidance of, what, of precedent, of what other presidents have done, and determine whether or not an executive order would be appropriate. Uh, I would not use executive orders uh, just because we can't get something done in Congress. I believe in the system that we have. At the same time, I would use executive orders that, is, that are in the tradition of what presidents have done before, where I see an opportunity to make important change. The thing is, uh, we know that if we want to change our healthcare system in a meaningful way, we can't do that by executive order. We're going to have to do that through the will of the people as expressed by Congress. Right? If we want something like universal pre-K, which I have advocated for, you know, we're not going to do that unless we actually have the support of the United States Congress. And in that, there's actually a challenge to the American people right, to get out there and participate at the local level, at the federal level in these congressional elections and make a difference. It also, though, points to another point I would make, which is uh, we need to completely change the way that redistricting, that the drawing up of these lines is done in this country. I support legislation that's in the Congress right now to go to an independent or commission style of redistricting so that the politicians are not choosing their people, the people are choosing their politicians. Because part of the problem and part of the reason that presidents have used executive orders more and more over these last few years is because things are so polarized, because these districts are gerrymandered, that politicians don't have to speak to the other side. We need to change that to reduce the polarization and get things more in balance so that Congress is able to get things done and presidents will feel less pressure uh, to use executive orders instead of going through Congress. Thank you very much. Thank, Thank you, you for the question. Another social media question coming in, this one from Scott Hatch. He says, as the national debt exceeds $22 trillion and candidates are offering more social programs, how would you meet current fiscal demands while reducing the debt? That's a great, great question, and I get asked that question a lot. Um, I believe that we need to be fiscally responsible. Uh, number one, uh, we need to garner more revenue, take in more revenue, right? Uh, and we also need to ensure that we're controlling spending. On the spending side, uh, I would subject every single department of the federal government to rigorous scrutiny in terms of our spending, including the Department of Defense. There are different ways, I believe, that we can achieve cost savings. Um, on the revenue side, what's happened in this country is that over the last 40 years, we've been asking more and more from the middle class and from the working poor, and less and less from people at the very top and big corporations. Y'all may have seen, for instance, a few weeks ago, it was reported that uh, Amazon made more than $11 billion last year, but Amazon didn't pay any federal tax. There were 60 American companies that were recently cited, well-known companies, big companies, that also 
were profitable and didn't pay any federal tax. In fact, some of them had a negative tax liability because of the tax code. How does that happen that you and families out there are paying more federal tax than Amazon? Because our tax code has gone in the wrong direction. So to answer your question, I would not only um, be rigorous on the spending side, I would also ensure that we draw more revenue to be able to pay for a 21st century safety net, universal health care, universal pre-K for three and four-year-olds, higher education, that 21st century safety net that can ensure that all Americans can prosper. Can you point to something you did as the HUD secretary to save money? Sure. Um, you know, one of the things that uh, President Obama charged us with doing uh, in the federal government was going through our, our regulations and getting rid of those regulations that were overly burdensome and some that didn't make sense. And as part of that, um, you know, we were able to streamline HUD's uh, administration and to save money in the process. Next question comes from Lynn Healy. Good evening. Hello. Um, my question is two parts. I first am interested in your vision um, for the United States on the world stage. And the second part is, who do you have advising you and working with you on this issue? Yeah. Thank you very much for the question, Lynn. Uh, where do I start here with the, uh, what this president has done uh, to the reputation and, I believe, to the strength of the United States around the world? First of all, I believe that we have the greatest nation on earth. Uh, and as Americans, when we walk around the world in different countries, there is, a, there is still uh, a respect that people have because you're an American and it means something, right? It always should mean something. I believe that we have a role to play in leading on those values that have made this nation great and that we know are important for other countries around the world. Freedom, democracy, and opportunity. That doesn't mean that we get engaged in unnecessary or ill-advised conflicts. We saw the mistake of Iraq. I believe that we need to be thoughtful before we ever go into any kind of military conflict. We also need to make sure that if we ever decide to do that, that we summon our allies to be a part of it. We also need to be thoughtful about if we ever withdraw from those conflicts. One difference that I have with this president is that even though I agree that, and many people agree, that we need to withdraw from places like Afghanistan and Syria, this president announced it one day over Twitter without properly consulting the military, our military, or our allies. We need to be thoughtful and more careful than that, and I would be. I would also, as a first order of business, repair the damage that this president has done with our allies around the world, our closest allies, the UK, Germany, uh, France, and also institutions like NATO that have helped keep us safer and have helped us prosper in the 20th and 21st century. And finally, I would strike up new partnerships. Uh, for instance, in Mexico and Latin America, there was a big payoff militarily or keeping us safe and also economically over the years uh, with the relationships that we forged post-World War II in Europe. Those have been great for the United States. But we have never taken as seriously our neighbors to the South. And it's important that we do that more than ever, not only on this issue of immigration, but also because you have countries like China 
that are going around the world to Latin America and to Africa and forging their own relationships. It's estimated that in 2030, China is supposed to eclipse the United States and become the largest economy in the world. We need to forge partnerships now more than ever. And I'm be I believe that I could play a unique role as the next president in forging those kinds of relationships with our neighbors to the south. Uh, finally, uh, as to your other question, um, during the vice presidential selection process that I was a part of and during this presidential campaign, I have a number of people that we're consulting on foreign policy that are at, that range from um, people at universities to think tanks to people who have served uh, our nation before. And uh, I continue to take their advice, uh, get their input, and also read <laughs> read up on the actual policy. People still do that. Uh, and it's important that we do that uh, because, uh, you know, my service has been in domestic policy. Right? So I want to make sure that I do everything that I can to be prepared to understand, well, uh, the fullness of these issues. And that's what I've been doing. Thank, Thank you. you. Lynn. We've got about 30 seconds. Secretary, I'm just curious. You're an identical twin. Mm -hmm. Would they have to give uh, Secret Service protection to your brother as well if you're the president? Well, you know, he's a little bit uglier than I am, so they could probably <laughs> tell us apart, you know. Uh, actually, they already do that. They actually, the Secret Service gives protection to usually the family members, the immediate family members of a president. Uh, and I, I think also the vice president. So uh, the answer to that is yes. Be safe. Yeah. For now. Yeah. Okay. Do you know Gomer's gollies? Golly, 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 Sergeant, I just can't get over it. Get to know Gomer's gollies on Gomer Pile. Sponsored by Heritage Plumbing, Heating, Cooling, Electric. We've got our crack team of New Hampshire voters here ready to, with all of their questions, uh, in a commercial-free 30-minute format. So let's start first with Leonard Morrill. Well, first of all, welcome back to New Hampshire. Thank you. According to CNN, President Trump's tax cuts are helping most U.S. taxpayers. In New Hampshire, 80% of the taxpayers have seen a positive effect. Why do all Democratic candidates only refer to the tax cuts as only being for the top 1%? We're not in the top 1%. Yeah. Thank you very much for the question, Leonard. You know, I've talked to many people now across the country campaigning and met a lot of families that actually did worse under this uh, Trump tax cut than better. Um, and I think especially of folks who live in places like uh, New York uh, or other states that uh, this, this uh, tax cut took away the ability to deduct state and local taxes, for instance. Um, and it was very clear as well that it was a tax cut that was aimed at the very wealthy people that were doing very well. So let's say that you have a family that's middle class. And let's say even that that middle class family paid $500 less in taxes this year. But you have people at the very top that are paying millions and millions less than they were before. And I believe that that's going in the wrong direction, that we need middle class tax relief, not mostly tax relief for people that are already doing very well. Uh, I pointed out a little earlier, for instance, that Amazon made more than $11 billion in profit and at the same time, they paid no federal tax. And there were 60 well-known American companies that made a profit but paid no federal tax. That means that our tax code is completely out of whack. It's completely out of order. And I believe in a tax code that will actually reward work instead of wealth and will provide a benefit to middle-class families. 
I also believe that we need to use the tax code to be able to um, invest in a 21st century safety net. Right? What's happening in our economy right now is that um, many people are, more and more people are self-employed. You have people that are participating in this gig economy, driving Uber, driving Lyft, and a lot of companies, as you know, I'm sure, are classifying what used to be employees as independent contractors. So they don't have to give them the benefits that they used to give them. That means that a lot of people don't get health care, right? They're on their own. They got to go to one of these exchanges. Uh, they don't get a retirement benefit. Well, what that means for us is that as a nation, we have to step in. I see a role, a reasonable role for the federal government to step in with a 21st century safety net. And the only way that we're going to get there is to ensure that we have a tax code that is balanced, that does not overly give away too much to people at the very top and big corporations, but expects more from them so that we can invest in all Americans. Thanks, Leonard. Quick follow-up there. How do you help Congress rewrite that tax code and not end up with the loopholes that we always see one way or another for these uh, folks to get out of them? That's a great question. Uh, well, first of all, we need to find a way to overturn Citizens United and get big money out of politics. That's the reason that you have all of these loopholes, because you have big interests that have the money to hire a lot of lobbyists that go and you know, convince a member of Congress that's a powerful person on a committee to get that written into legislation, and then that ends up being on page 122 uh, of a tax document, tax legislation. We need to get big money out of politics. In the meantime, we need to ensure that there's as much transparency around this as possible. So, for instance, one of the things that I have proposed is making Congress subject to the Freedom of Information Act. You know that if you wanted to get a look at um, the emails that your local city council member has sent to constituents or how they've interacted with people that give their campaign money, you know, on official email or letters, correspondence, you can do that. Generally, if you want to get that information for somebody who is a state assembly person or representative, you can do that. But Congress made itself exempt from the Freedom of Information Act. What sense does that make that you, as an American citizen, can't even get any insight into how congressmen or congresswomen are dealing with these interests that are trying to get things like loopholes written into the tax code? We need to put, we need to shine the light of transparency on them get rid of that exemption of the Freedom of Information Act, and also overturn Citizens United and get big money out of politics so that we can get a tax code that is more in the interest of American families in the middle class instead of every little special interest that has enough money to lobby for a loophole. Next question comes from Clara Monier. Thank you. Welcome back to New Hampshire, Secretary Thank Castro. Thank you very much. <laughs> With Social Security running into problems by 2035, this crisis needs to be averted. Do you have any pro, uh, programs that might avert the crisis? Thank you very much uh, for the question. I know that this is an issue that is very much on the minds of a lot of Americans. In fact, uh, today we have baby boomers that are turning 65 at record numbers. My mother is 71, so of course I personally am concerned about making sure that Social Security is there. Um, let me tell you, let me begin by saying what I don't agree with, and then I'll tell you what I do agree with. Um, uh, I don't agree with those who say that um, 
Ontario that we need to scale back our commitment to Social Security. I believe that, in fact, we need to increase our commitment to Social Security. And during the course of this campaign, I look forward to proposing my own plan of how we would do that. I believe that we need to look at, for instance, increasing the payroll tax right, to be able to fund greater social, the Social Security Trust Fund in a greater way. Um, because for many Americans, Social Security is, anything, is everything that they have. That's all they have after they turn age 65. Right? Most Americans don't have, and my grandmother is a good example of this. My grandmother used to get uh, a few hundred dollars in Social Security every month. And she didn't have, she never owned a house. Uh, she didn't have any money that she had set aside, saved up for retirement. She had no retirement plan. All she had was Social Security. That means that we need to look at, in very serious ways, creating additional revenue for that Social Security Trust Fund. Now let me just also link this back, though, connect these dots to our previous conversation about immigration. This is one of the reasons that I believe we should take a different view of immigration from this president. We have so many people that are turning 65. Um, we have an unemployment rate right now of 3.9%. We have an aging population in the United States. We also see a declining birth rate in our country. Now, what do we need for a healthy Social Security Trust Fund? What we need is a young, vibrant workforce. Right? We've seen countries like Japan around the world that, that are suffering because they don't have that, as much of that young, vibrant workforce. Immigration is part of the answer to that young, vibrant, growing workforce that we can create in our country without taking away opportunity from our own folks here in the United States. But I see that as one essential tool to helping ensure that we're able to support our baby boomers going forward and that we have a strong Social Security Trust Fund. I see these issues as connected. Thank you. Thank you, Clara. Another social media question coming in here, this one from Damian McConnell. He asks, what are your views on equal rights for transgender people? Thank you, Damian, uh, for that question. Uh, throughout my time in public service, I have always been uh, an ally of the LGBTQ community. Uh, just specifically, when I was mayor of San Antonio, uh, we passed a non-discrimination ordinance uh, that included the transgender community. Some people uh, suggested that, well, you know, should you leave out the transgender community? Uh, we did not. We included the transgender community in our non-discrimination ordinance in San Antonio to make sure that they could not be discriminated against. In our, in our city. When I was HUD secretary, one of the things that we did is we expanded something called the Equal Access Rule. The Equal Access Rule uh, essentially dealt with how federally subsidized shelters would treat people who were LGBT. Uh, we expanded it to include transgender individuals so that if somebody is transgender and they showed up at a federally subsidized shelter, they would be accommodated according to their preference. I don't believe that anybody should be treated like a second-class citizen in this country. Our values are to treat everybody equally the same, and that includes transgender individuals. And so um, I would say to Damien that I have a track record when I was mayor, when I was HUD secretary, and as president, I will continue to ensure that we protect the rights of transgender Americans. Next question comes from Connie Evans of Where. How are you, Mr. Secretary? Doing great. Good. Doing great. <laughs> How would you deal with Kim Jong-un 
and get him to denuclearize North Korea? Yeah. Thank you very much for the question. Uh, you know, one of the oddest things to figure out is any kind of strategy that this president has when it comes to dealing with North Korea. I'm disappointed because the administration actually started off on a relatively good note. You may remember that over a year ago, they got, they marshaled the support of other countries at the UN to impose further sanctions on North Korea to try and get them to stop, to halt their development of a nuclear weapon. At the time, I and others who don't necessarily always agree with the president said that, hey, we give you credit. That's the kind of thing that you should be doing more of. And then this president went off on this wild goose chase, undisciplined, with two of these summits where he had clearly not done his homework, had overpromised and underdelivered to the American people. Remember he said basically there was no more threat from North Korea? Well, it turns out that our, our uh, best intelligence suggests that they have a nuclear weapon. There is some disagreement about whether they have what's called a re-entry vehicle. In other words, whether that nuclear weapon could successfully land in the United States and hit its target. But we can't take that chance. So here's what I would do. Number one, I would remarshal the support of our allies of South Korea, of Japan, of other countries to put economic pressure, greater sanctions on North Korea to pressure them to halt any development of a nuclear weapon. Uh, and I would also recommit the United States to the Iran nuclear agreement, the JCPOA, because that set a strong precedent for how we're going to deal with nations to discourage them from moving forward with a nuclear arms program. The final thing I'll say about this and connect North Korea to, to this other challenge is that I believe the president made a mistake when he said that we were going to withdraw from the ICBM treaty. This ICBM treaty has been in existence over 30 years. It's between the United States and Russia. Right? right after he said that, Putin said that they were going to withdraw from it. It takes six months to withdraw from this treaty. If the United States and Russia withdraw, I would actually look for new opportunities to forge a new treaty that includes countries like China that were not included in the original treaty, but that was over 30 years ago. Times have changed. Their capability has changed and grown. Their military is growing. So we have to look for every chance to turn a setback into a new 21st century opportunity when it comes to controlling the proliferation of nuclear weapons in our world. Thank you. Thank you, Connie. Next question comes from Elizabeth Radisich. Hi, good evening. Thank you for being here tonight. Uh, I'm the mom of the cutest three-year-old twins that you've ever seen. Uh, they're African. Do you have a picture? picture? <laughs> it's on my phone. I don't have it with me. Um, and I forgive you for being a twin. Uh, but uh, they're African-American. And since I'm not, I do a lot of listening to uh, African-American moms to learn more about race and then share what I learn. As a Hispanic man, who are people that you listen to about race? And what are some of the key things that you've learned from them? You know, I read a lot um, on, on different subject matters, as you can imagine these days. But uh, Tana Hazy Coates, I think, has been one of the most 
um, poignant and effective writers uh, in our modern times on the subject of race. Uh, and I'll give you an example of this. Recently, this issue has come up in the presidential campaign about reparations. Right. And a few years ago, he wrote a very compelling uh, article in the Atlantic magazine about the history of uh, slavery and also the effect of Jim Crow and the lasting impact that those things have had on African Americans in this country that influenced my thinking as I was asked the question about whether we should go forward in considering reparations or not. Um, but also just people in my daily life, right, that are different backgrounds from me. Some of the best conversations I think that we're able to have are those conversations with friends that are honest, right, that are unguarded, right, where people give you their unvarnished opinion, people of different backgrounds. There have also been moments in the last couple of years that have inspired me. Um, I'll give you an example of that. Uh, on June 17th of last year, on Father's Day, I went down to the border to this place called the Ursula Processing Center in McAllen to join a group of activists that were protesting the family separation policy of this administration. And, you know, it was very sad to see there that children were in there and you knew that they were being separated from their parents. But it was uplifting to see that the activists themselves, you know, some of them were my color and the color of the kids that were in that center, but a lot of them were white, some of them were black, some of them were Asian American. It was very powerful because it reminded me that what brings us together are our values, regardless of the color of our skin. We were there because we believed in compassion and humanity, a basic respect, and that there was a better way to do this than to separate those little children from their families. And so, um, you know, I know that, I'm sure that you are a wonderful mom to your boys. Boy and a girl. A boy and a girl. All right. Yeah, you have the complete each. set. Yes, yeah. I do. <laughs> um, and, um, and their names are Grant Roosevelt and Reagan Kennedy. So There you go. <laughs> <laughs> so you know, one or both should grow up to be presidents yeah. then. Eh? Um, but, you know, I believe that all of us have a lot to learn from each other. And I think that um, in the years to come, one of the things, just to bring this back to this campaign, that we will benefit from is having a president that is not so dead set on creating fear and paranoia and stoking division among us based on our background, whatever background that is, um, so that we can have more of those conversations and continue, I think, to repair uh, the damage that has been done along the way. Thank you. Thank you, Elizabeth. Next question comes from Rosemary Rung, who just also happens to be a state representative from Merrimack. Thank you, Secretary. Thank you for having me out here again. Thank you for coming to New Hampshire, Secretary. My question is, what do you think is the most important quality for a president to have? <sighs> the reason that I, I take a second is because the role of the presidency is such an important role that there are many important qualities. But I would say, I, I have always believed that the fundamental basis of public service is honesty. I think people need to know that with your president that he or she is being honest with you. And um, I'm not much into trying to make this country anything again. I want to make it better than ever for everybody in the future. But I do 
want to restore integrity and honesty to the White House. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Quick follow-up there. Uh, let's fast forward to 2021, and President Castro is taking office. Presumably, President Donald Trump is leaving office uh, after a single term, uh, but he's still going to have Twitter. Uh, and he's still going to be a former president of the United States. And it's been a long time in our history since we've had an adversarial relationship between any former president and a current president. How do you, would you deal, big hypothetical here, but how would you deal with somebody who was used to be a president who is still going to be very critical of what you're doing? You know, I have given this thought, actually, uh, because I have thought that, uh, that his attempts to divide the country will not end just because his tenure in public service ends. And um, so there's also, by the way, a good book, if any of y'all have read it, called The President's Club, that, that some of y'all have read it, that talks about the relationship over the last hundred years or so of presidents and former presidents. And there is a collegiality that exists among them. Um, how would I handle it? I think you just got to do the business of the American people and focus on trying to improve the lives of each American family, focus on health care, on jobs, on education, on those things that people care about. I also think that what's happening with this president <clears throat> is that people, even magic tricks, get old after a while. When he named, you know, Marco Rubio, Little Marco, and Lying Ted, and, you know, whatever he did with Jeb Bush, and people still ask me, well, what nickname do you think he's going to give you or what are you going to do when he gives you a nickname? And I tell him, look, what I'm going to do is speak to the American voter and tell him or her what I'm going to do for him or her and their family. Right? That doesn't mean I'm, going to, I'm not going to stand up to Donald Trump, and I will, but I'm not going to make Donald Trump the focus of this campaign. Right? What I'm going to make the focus of this campaign is you and your family and what I would do for you if I'm president of the United States. And that goes for Donald Trump, whether he's president now or whether he's a former president. Um, I would focus on the business of the American people and let him be the sideshow that he wants to be. And I think that, that that magic trick is getting old by the day. Next question comes from Dan Bergeron of Manchester. Secretary Castro, how are you? A few weeks ago after an event, you had shared with me that your dad was an educator for several years, mm -hmm. a teacher. And so I guess based on, <clears throat> excuse me, connecting the dots, as you were saying earlier, uh, what does, you know, education funding, what would that look like in a Castro White House? And if you could sort of just relate it to locally here in Manchester or, you know, every city or state. Yeah, thanks a lot. Thanks. Yeah, yeah, so um, you know, I'm a proud product of the public schools of San Antonio. My brother and I went to public schools all but one year. My mom had gone to Catholic school for 16 straight years, and she put us in Catholic school one year. Then <laughs> 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 that was enough. Uh, yes. But uh, yeah, I went back and forth and so. There you go. Uh, my my father was a teacher for 31 years, a math teacher. My wife actually taught in the classroom elementary for eight or nine years and that she still is a curriculum specialist in one of the public school districts down there. So, you know, I believe that to improve um, education in our country, we need to prioritize public education. And I would pay teachers what they deserve. I would reduce class sizes in our country. Uh, I would work to make sure that no matter what the needs of a student are, that he or she can have those needs met at the school they go to. Go to because I've met so many special needs parents over the years 
who have told me that they feel like they have to be a lawyer to advocate for their child and make sure that they get what they need from the school and that it shouldn't be like that. So your question is, okay, well, um, you know, how are we going to make those investments? Uh, to go back to the conversation about a different tax code, uh, during uh, this campaign, actually within the next two weeks, we're going to release an education plan, including what we would do to pay for it, um, about investing in all of the things I mentioned in K through 12 education and universal pre-K for three and four year olds, as well as higher education. Uh, you know, I believe that we can do that if we write, rewrite our tax code that's in a balanced way that expects more from people at the very top and from big companies and invest that revenue in education and other things that we need in this 21st century. I look forward to reading that. Thank you. Thanks, Dan. Next question comes from Kim Mimsheimer uh, of Lee. Thank you, Secretary Castro. Earlier in your um, discussion about Social Security, you talked about the aging population of the United States. New Hampshire is the second oldest state um, in the country, and we have 100,000 people in this state affected by Alzheimer's disease, 32,000 with it, and 68,000 people caring for it. If you were elected president, what would you do about the public health crisis that is Alzheimer's? Thank you very much for the question. Uh, and, you know, I've met several families along the way of this campaign, but just in life before, uh, that have grappled with Alzheimer's and, you know, have seen the way that that, uh, the way people have described it to me, um, you know, turns the person into a shell of himself or herself. Um, but also there are amazing stories of daughters or sons, adult daughters or sons, who have been wonderful caregivers. Right? Uh, a couple of things. Number one, I would invest in greater support for those caregivers. Right? That's why we need more robust um, paid family leave, for instance. That's why we need um, better tax credits for people who have to expend money to take care of uh, uh, adult father or mother that, or senior father or mother that has Alzheimer's. Uh, it also is a reason that I support robust funding into research Right, so that one day we can find a cure for Alzheimer's, and I believe that we can. I mean, if we go back, you know, 100 years ago, think about all the things that we can treat or cure today that we didn't believe, we never believed we would have been able to 100 years ago. And so I'm actually excited about being a president that believes in investing in science again, so that one day we can find that cure. In the meantime, I would invest in greater support for families that are dealing with Alzheimer's because I know that this is a, this is a condition um, that does not happen overnight. Right? Oftentimes, somebody can live with Alzheimer's for years. And so it takes a real toll, and we need to support our families that are dealing with that. Thank you. Yes. Thank you, Kim. Next question comes from Carolyn Moore. Hi. 40% uh, of the country's voters are independents. 75% of that uh, have a problem with the word socialism being used so much by the Democratic Party candidates. How will, do you plan on winning our votes? <laughs> yeah, thank you very much, <laughs> Carolyn, for that question. Um, you know, what, let me just say what I see out there right now. What I see out there is a real strategy by this president to call Democrats socialists, right? And it's funny because this actually, as y'all will remember, has a real history to it. Right. Have y'all ever seen Ronald Reagan in the 1960s when he was calling Medicare socialism? 
right? Yeah, you can still find those on YouTube, those ads. Uh, at every juncture where we have proposed an initiative that would do right by the American people, whether it was our seniors or vulnerable communities, they have called it socialism. And so in some sense, this is really nothing new. They've been doing it for generations, right? Now, what do we have to do, though, politically? You know, we are in a campaign. We, are, we do want to make sure that we're successful. Uh, we have to point out what we, what we mean exactly. Right? What we're talking about is nothing that is radical or that the United States has not done before. For instance, when I call for universal higher education, like tuition-free public state universities, community colleges, apprenticeship programs, there are people here who remember, and especially if you lived in one of these states, that uh, just a generation or two ago, a lot of state university systems were tuition free in my neck of the, or close to it, in my neck of the woods of Texas. Uh, it, people will tell you that in the 70s or 80s, it was like $50 a credit hour per semester. The University of California system up through the late 70s, early 80s was tuition free. Other states. So I'm going to point out to the American people that we're not doing anything that's radical. What we're doing is that we're investing again in the American people and making sure that they can succeed. Same thing with our healthcare system. I mean, Medicare basically is a, is a program that the government runs, right? Now, I believe in, that everybody should have access for me, to Medicare. I also believe if you have a private health insurance plan and you want to hold on to that plan, that you should be able to do that. But I do believe that the government has a more, more robust role to play. And we're going to spend a lot of time pointing out to the American people, to their to families, why what we're doing is in the best interest of them. And I would just say also, it was fascinating a few months ago when uh, Representative Alejandra Ocasio-Cortez talked about raising the top marginal tax rate. Remember that that uh, the top marginal tax rate up through the 60s used to be 91 or 92 percent, and then by the time Reagan got in, it was 72%, and then he lowered it very significantly. Right? And there was conversation about, oh, you know, could it go back up to 70%? She did not say that it, she wanted it to go back up to 70%. She said you know, that she thought it should be raised. But then they did a poll. Somebody did a poll of Democrats and Republicans about whether you would support raising the top marginal tax rate to 70%. And even 45% of Republicans said that they would support that. And the reason for that is because people are frustrated, again, that we've been asking so little from people at the very top for a long time and more and more from them and their families. So he can cry socialism all he wants, but we know that all this is is investing in the basic building blocks of a prosperous country and families that can actually get by and prosper in education, in healthcare, in jobs in this country. Thank you, Carolyn. We've got a little bit of time left here, a little less than a minute. Uh, you brought up your mom a lot tonight, and this has been yeah. a really well-read conversation with the candidate. Uh, people who become president tend to have very strong mothers. So explain what your mom has, how she has shaped you as a leader. Uh, I wouldn't be here without my mom. First, my, my mom raised me as a single mother, my brother and me. Um, she worked very hard to support us and to support her mom, my grandmother. Uh, and my mom was the first in her family to graduate from high school and then to get to go on to college. She was also a hellraiser. She was involved in women's empowerment issues and Hispanic issues when she was young. And so she raised my brother and me to believe 
that you can make a difference in the democratic process. And, um, you know, I thank God every single day that I grew up with the mother that I grew up with. And I'll always remember uh, the lessons that she taught me if I'm president. Secretary Castro, we thank you for joining this conversation thank with the candidate. Thanks for joining us for WMUR's The Trail, from New Hampshire to the White House. If you have a moment and can write a review or subscribe to this podcast, we'd certainly appreciate it. You can also find us on WMUR.com and our free WMUR app 24-7. See you for the next episode of this podcast next week.